There have only been four individuals in Missouri history who have served two consecutive terms as governor. One of them is Jay Nixon. The Democratic statewide official has made an indelible mark in politics and public policy. And now he's thinking about his legacy after eight years in the biggest office in the state. The Jefferson County native joins us on a very special edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our special guest, at least the second or third most famous politician ever to come out of Jefferson County, first being Bill Bradley, second being the late Ron Casey. <laughs> we have, as our special guest today... Governor Jay Nixon. We are, and I'm, I'm, I mean this sincerely, sir, we are very honored that you decided to talk with us today. Yeah, it, so this will be specially long, so people who use this weather on the treadmill, be prepared. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try, to, uh, I'll try <laughs> to allow you to complete your workout here. I'll, I'll, I'll talk really slow and see if you get an extra couple miles in. Well, you used to be a good basketball player. I, I know that you've had knee surgery, so your dreams of playing in the NBA have been dashed. But I, from what I've heard from Joe and others, you were pretty – fierce and, and, and competitive as a basketball player. Well, I mean, I, I played a lot um, and uh, I played competitively later on in life. I mean, I, I did pretty well with, with my body until I was about 40 years old, had somebody fall on my knee in a Special Olympics benefit game, and that began a series of uh, knee surgeries that led to both my knees being replaced about a year ago. Yeah. So what are you doing in the last couple of months? You, you, you're you're going to be out of office, I think, after early January. Um, give our listeners a sense of what a governor in your situation does kind of at this point in their term. Well, first of all, there's 73 days left, and that's not an um – and we, at the beginning of the year, I started putting on each one of my memos how many days were left, not because it's like a sentence you're ending, <laughs> um, but, but, but we want to remain focused and get things done. Right. Um, so, and I, plus, I pledged to Missourians that I would work as hard the last 100 days as I did the first 100 days. I think Missourians share a value of finishing things, and so I'm really committed uh, to, to that. This week, for example, we've been doing our Safer Stronger tour around the state to talk about emergency management, to talk about the things we've done. Yesterday, we were in St. Joseph to talk about the levies that were rebuilt and how important that is. And we were at a faith-based roundtable where we have organized all of those groups uh, before that. The day before, we were in Sykeston to deal with our interoperability of our radios now in, in law enforcement. 1,147 agencies hooked up to that system. About $87 million we spent over the last eight years to set that system up and make it so we were able to do from a parking lot in, in, in Sykes and talk to folks all across the state, at hospitals, at uh, police stations, and whatnot. So the bottom line is that's a good example of, of, of laying out what we're doing. Today, I've already been out to Monsanto where we uh, cut the ribbon on the new $400 million uh, facility there. Uh, I'm speaking at, at noon to the bi-state uh, economic development uh, luncheon. Uh, I'll finish this evening uh, out at uh, Winsville Holt. Uh, where uh, they're hosting the Project Lead the Way uh, teacher training. Uh, we've moved from fewer than 100 schools of Project Lead the Way, yeah. almost 600 now, uh, something we've been working on a long time. And then we've got a lot of economic development things that we're continuing to do. I'll be going to Germany relatively soon to meet with the CEO of, uh, of uh, Bayer 
yesterday met with the CEO of Beringer Ungelheim Betmedica uh, on the western side of the state on some economic development things. So you keep working on the on the uh, the economic development side. So kind of a typical lazy day <laughs> at yeah. the end of the of the term. I, I I remember the last day of veto session when you had your press conference. You're, you could barely hide your glee about the fact that you wouldn't be having to deal with the General Assembly, at least not in a block, I mean, for the last two. I mean, does that make it freer for you because you can now do all these things that you really want to get done before well, the I'm, end? Well, I'm, I'm 73 days away from getting my First Amendment rights back, uh, <laughs> which, will be, which will be fun, too. I mean, I, I, it, uh, I can, I can, uh, I'll be able to uh, you know, cut loose just a little bit more. But, um, well, no, I, I just think that the—, the um, um, the, the veto, that veto session was, you know, some of the stuff, it got, it got partisan. Yeah. I, mean, I think some of the votes folks weren't, and, and that's why I asked the press and a lot of other people to read the veto messages because um, on some of those bills, um, you know, when the House is, is talking about overriding you to take away protections uh, that we have to get employers to sign up for E-Verify right, so right. That we know whether folks are, 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 are legal or illegal or not. And at the same time, their nominee is is saying we should build a wall and keep everybody out. Yet, yet Republicans here are voting to do that. I mean, I think some of the stuff got so political that the frustration level was not that that they have the right to do that sort of stuff, but it was kind of a little bit of the lack of uh, uh, lack of full thought, I think, into this into uh, into uh, what their votes meant. Now, and before we get into your you know retrospective stuff, I believe you have bought a house in University City. I, I've even been told by some people that you or Georgiana are walking your dog around that, that part of, of St. Louis. Yeah, when we're there, the dog refuses to stay inside at all times. So, so we've, had to, we've had to break it out. Why did that. you decide to relocate there? Why didn't you decide to go back to like DeSoto or Jefferson County or something like that? Well, I mean, it, uh, um, it's a good community. Um, it's centrally located in the region. Um, has access to some things that I'm sure I'll be involved in in, in my next career. And uh, so we, we wanted, you know, you're relatively near the airport there. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're close uh, to Wash yeah, U. Yeah, you're close to Wash U. You're close to the airport. It's a good central location. And uh, um, while I have um, 50% of the stock in the choice, I have 49 percent of the voting rights. <laughs> hey, that sounds good. That's fair. That's, no, that's it's, it's, fair. I mean, I've we been want, married we, 40 years. Uh, I know, you know how that yeah, goes. No, it's it's. Uh, um, um, we we lived in an older house in Jeff City when I was attorney general. Uh, we like kind of older houses and in mature neighborhoods where you can walk and, and trees. And uh, we we were joking. We felt a little like uh, Mitt Romney. We we felt like the trees are the right size there. You know. <laughs> so does your old house in Jeff City? Uh, I mean, does that become like a historic site because you used to live there? Um, it was already right when we left. Uh, they 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 made it a, a Jefferson City historic landmark. Um, Harry Truman used to come there when uh, that that house was owned by the Cook family, um, the bankers. And back in the day, Harry Truman would come by and play poker in the back room there, what wow. they call the Florida room. Um, Do so, you have a plaque there in the back room? Uh, no, that but uh, you can still kind of smell cigar <laughs> smoke. <laughs> yeah, he did use cigar. So, it, so if regardless of who wins the next governor's race, whether it's Coster or Greitens, is, is their current residence going to become a historical landmark, like uh, Coster's apartment in Jefferson <laughs> City or something like that? We'll see. I don't know. I, I think our house is historic in Jeff City, not because of me, but because it was built a long time ago before the uh, and it had. Uh, but it it uh, if, if folks want to go by um, and. Uh, and look at a house they can do that well one of the one of the things that i thought is that has been noticeable while you've been busy being governor um you haven't been at least not overtly 
busy on the campaign trail. I mean, you're not running. Um, president Barack Obama is unusually busy right now. I've never seen a president that busy trying to help, I mean, an outgoing president trying to help mm -hmm. a successor uh, in modern memory. But in your case, is there a particular reason why you decided not to be out there campaigning for people? I mean, was there? I, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I've, first of all, I'm staying in close contact with all of our, our, uh, especially our senior candidates. I'm on the uh, talk to them and giving advice and taking questions and working with them. Democrats, the certainly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just um, um, and, and staying in touch with uh, with folks. Obviously, we've got a number of folks that. I've worked with that are yeah. involved in the Clinton campaign, whether it's Orangeshire or Channing Ansley and all that sort of stuff. Yes. So we, we stay in very close contact with what's going on out there. But I did make a constructive decision that my job was to this year was to continue to lead the state through this. And I think it's especially uh, powerful and important to, during a kind of a contentious election to have um, a governor that's that's. Uh, continuing to move the state forward, uh, continuing to focus on nonpartisan matters, on, on the things that I do. And plus, when you have the, the numbers we have in the state, um, it, it's just it's, it's kind of the habit I've gotten into of, of trying to work with folks. And I, it's quite frankly, um, the, the substance of this position is more challenging and interesting than well, the politics. Plus, you've been, I mean, literally, you've been running in statewide elections since 1988. With with no break, and you also ran in 1998 during a right. midterm election. I mean, you you're, you can take an election off every now and then. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so. I, George, when we went to the polls in August, I mean, George and I we voted. Georgia and I voted at different times, but when we came home, we both had this kind of good feeling that my name went on the ballot. <laughs> I mean, it was just kind of a liberating feeling. But uh, yeah, I, I ran for state senate '86, U.S. Senate '88, re-election in '90, AG in '92, uh, re-election in '96, Senate in '98. Re-election in 2000. So I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've gotten more votes than anyone cumulative yeah, anybody fact, in the history of our state. So I mean, I've, I've done my, my piece out there. And I, the other thing is, especially in the bigger races here with senator and and, and governor, um, you've got really good candidates on our side that are new, and the, the state needs to hear their voices. Um, and and these are jobs that that people need to get comfortable with your voice, and you know who you are. They need to feel like what's important to you. Um, and uh, especially for, for, for governor, uh, third-party verifies or other politicians saying good things about a candidate just yeah. doesn't have the well, same the, effect. Well, the, there have been times, I mean, we had a conversation a, a month or two ago. You were a little upset with what the attorney general said about school funding. So, Well, he was wrong, so I said, I said that he was wrong. I mean, we, did, we didn't have a crisis. We've got $400 million more in school funding for K-12 than when I became elected, and we've made that a key priority. Um, I do think the legislature made a mistake by lowering the target for the foundation formula, but I, I just, when he said that, that I, I just, you know. Well, I want to ask more generally, because I, I know you're not supporting Eric Greitens. I know you want Chris Koster to be Absolutely. governor. But, and this has been a point that I've been trying to make since 2012 or 2013. Even though he switched parties, he still retained a number of fairly conservative positions that are, are different we're, from we're you. We're talking about Coster. We're talking about Coster. And I'm not just talking about guns or until like three months ago campaign finance, but like agriculture policy. I would say that you're, you have vetoed a number of bills that you think are, are giving too much power to corporate ag or big ag. He's been endorsed by the Farm Bureau and many commodity groups. Is are I mean, you, I was endorsed uh, by yeah, by commodity groups yeah, also. Yeah, so, I mean, my, my relationship just, with, yeah, with that sort of that. stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I, the, the, the differences of opinion I've had been on basically fiscal policy. Right. The, the bill this okay. year to give a retroactive $45 million tax break uh, in the agriculture when instead we should be using that money on education. I just thought right. that was the wrong policy. Yeah. So I, I – I, and uh, I, I think the, the bill this year that shifted – I mean, I, 
the responsibility if your cattle get loose. I think if you're a farmer yeah. and your cattle get loose and the neighbor hits it, yeah. that you should be responsible for keeping your cattle. And why they want to change the law to say that if you have a cow and it gets out, yeah. it's the responsibility of the person that hits it with a car. I just don't think that's good well, policy. Yeah, I, I mean, think the point I was trying to ask is, I know that again, you're gonna you want Costa to be governor, but are you are you comfortable with all of his positions that's gonna not only be good for Missouri, but maybe even secure part of your legacy? Well, I mean, I, I everybody's entitled to run on what 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 they say, and he's been clear in a lot of these positions, unlike his opponent, uh, which is why we're talking about his positions exactly. and why we're very generally talking about some other guy that might be running against him, uh, <laughs> who has who has completely avoided the necessity of actually having detailed plans. Um, so, but. Um, so uh, the bottom line is that uh, Chris and I agree about some things. We disagree about, about other things. Uh, but he brings the experience and the knowledge, uh, and I have a, a full confidence that, that, that he can do a tremendous job. Uh, my legacy is people working together and moving the state forward economically. My legacy is uh, rebuilding the manufacturing base of this state. My legacy is protecting voters' rights. My legacy is, is making sure that we're, we're fighting for schools, K-12 and higher education. Uh, and I think in those swing zones and in, in, uh, in the mental health arena, I think in all those vital, important swing zones, uh, that uh, a governor pastor would continue on the tremendous progress that, that, that I've been involved in. Now, for more than 20 years, you have been an advocate of, of uh, campaign donation limits. And I've, heck, I was in Washington in the late 90s when you argued before the Supreme Court. Successfully. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I, remember... I may have to use my law license again. <laughs> yeah, cause, but I remember that day well for, for whatever reason. But... Uh, now we've got Remember Frank Fancroft sitting in the front row. Yes, uh, he was chair of the RNC at yes. the time. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> um, and to see him at the debates is interesting. And so then, um, I mean, we've got Amendment Amendment Two on the ballot, and and but there's some flaws in it that Jason and I have talked yeah, the about thing numerous that I, times. The thing that I brought up a lot, and maybe you can address this. I know that Democrats like yourself want campaign donation limits, so they're probably going to support this. But the fact that there's no limits on local and county offices. That just seems like a avenue for people to open up those types of committees, raise unlimited money, and use yeah, it to their it's benefit. Ex it's exactly the excuse that has yeah. stopped us from making incremental change. We need to make some progress. That's why I signed okay. some of the ethics bills this year that aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. Six-month revolving door is not going right. to solve the complete problem. Uh, some of the, the gift things that we dealt with aren't going to solve the complete problem. But, boy, it's 70 percent of Missourians voted for campaign limits, mm -hmm. and, 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 and we need to – and they're going to support this. These limits are going to pass. There are some challenges with this, both in how money is accounted for and which committees count and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. Yes. It's not. It's but boy, oh boy, to 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 say that you got to have the perfect ethics bill. You're always going to have money involved in politics. Yeah. People have First and, Amendment mm -hmm. rights, mm -hmm. but we need to. The one thing that I argued strongly at the United States Supreme Court and won when people didn't think we could is that you can limit the amount of dollars to a candidate committee. Mm -hmm. Okay, from an individual. Yeah. Two bad things are happening because we don't have those limits. Number one, the corrosive efforts, co corrosive things that happen when people assume government's not doing their best interests. Right. It get, builds cynicism. And number two, for politicians running, they're not doing the meat and potatoes type of thing that you used to have to do. I mean, when I ran for governor, I, I, was my, I chose the style to do it this way. We did a lot of $25 ahead events, $50 ahead events. Yes, we went I all over the states. So you guys cover some of them. Um, those things are a thing of the past. Uh, and so the same thing for state reps. Somebody will just wire transfer them 50 grand and they don't go to the ham and bean feeds. Maybe they don't even go to the school board meetings. Quite frankly, sometimes they don't show up to ribbon cuttings of factories in their in their districts. The bottom line is that it's making them 
less that that part of politics raising the money is part of the process and when you take away that as a, as a responsibility it makes folks not well, have a full Well and I just got to point this out before Joe asks a question this current governor's race cuz I just did a story at NPR for this is more expensive than the next two competitive governor's races combined and it's probably even maybe double that total amount because they said that right now it's $50 million. I think it's going to be 70 or $80 million by the time. Is That that has to be unfathomable to you because that well, wasn't, I mean, wasn't an expensive I, I, for either I, of your campaigns. I appreciate you did that. But you said that, but I, I the, the big states aren't on a ballot this year. So, I mean, you're not, right. you're not competing in California and New Correct. York or right. Florida. That's so, right. true. So, I mean, you're, while, we're while competing we're, with North Carolina and Indiana, right. which They're are similar size Similar states. size. So, I mean, you, but the governor's unique. You have 30-some-odd races one time and, you know, exactly. eight the other. So, right. but so still, while you're, you're, you're correct, but I'm, if you're going to fact-check Joe, I'll right. I understand. <laughs> Continue. But, 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 yeah, but, but I think— I, what, I'm not a person that believes that how much cumulatively is spent in the elections is, is the worst problem. I think how much money comes directly to candidates from one donor from one donor and and the the appearance uh, that's why I argue Supreme Court and why I believe deeply the appearance of corruption um, whether it is corruption or not that appearance has been found constitutionally to be able to be regulated by limits uh, for good reasons very good reasons um, and I mean you almost get blurred to it you turn on the uh, the you flip to the web page of the of the Ethics Commission now, and you run down that thing, and he's like fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar checks to state reps and state senators. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's got a couple million dollar checks. I mean, it's there. it's incredible. Um, so um, it, everybody's kind of getting dulled to it, but but that stuff affects elections dramatically. Yeah. Um, and so overall, yeah, perhaps seventy million dollars is is too much. But I'm you can't stop First Amendment rights. Yeah. If 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 your household wants to put up a big neon sign in the front yard. You know, vote for your son for for mayor or whatever he wants to run for in thirty years. You can do that. You can spend a million dollars on a neon sign in your front yard. That's First Amendment well, independent right. expenditure. Well, you know that Bebom is running for mayor right now as a two and a half year old, of course. But but, but <laughs> as a lawyer, okay, because and and the fact that you were before the Supreme Court, are you concerned at all? Should as a lawyer, I comment about a two and a half year old running, or should I just okay. skip no, no, that? no? Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Well, I'm 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 pr- I'm ig- ignoring the Bebom thing. <laughs> But and partly because I'm a grandmother and I don't want to talk about my nine month old. But but I think he'd be a better sheriff. But that's just me. I, I think he's, 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 he's yeah, in his <laughs> Spider Man uniform. But uh, but as a lawyer, though, when you're looking at some of the provisions in Amendment Two, um, are you concerned at all? I mean, I know they've got a several severability clause in there, but are you concerned at all that? A lot of it might end up getting tossed out since your former chief of staff is prepared to soon file a suit uh, uh, once it's passed, mm-hmm. you know, on behalf of some of the critics because of some of the provisions in it. Are you concerned about that? I mean, just we're, we're, we're just talking I'm about far more concerned about the fact that we don't have limits and that it's been almost 10 years since we had a plebiscite on it. OK, having a public vote. And showing everybody how much folks support limits is important. It can affect even if portions of this are 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 whittled away. Um, it will send a yet another clear and strong signal um, that that limits are an important part of of a broader ethics package that that we need to continue to move forward on. So we're going to look a bit more uh, retrospectively. It seems like it was just yesterday that it was at your your. One of your first press conferences as governor-elect, you were appointing Kelvin Simmons as Office of Administration Director. A lot has changed in eight years, and I wanted to talk in in in, in 
you know, some detail, but also broad strokes about what it's like to be governor during a pretty long period of time. So let's talk about kind of the, the things that you felt you accomplished and what you felt like you didn't accomplish. I'm going to just ask you pretty simply, and I'm sure you're going to tell me in detail. I'll what, try to go a couple and then yeah. we can Basically me, the so. best of times and the worst I of times. I want to know tomorrow. what you feel were the biggest accomplishments that, that, that the legislature passed and you signed or you spearheaded that occurred during your governorship. Well, I think one thing just before we get into that, sure. I do think that People tend to analogize the legislature to Congress. Mm -hmm. And in our system of government, it's the governor is much more governmentally powerful. Yes. The economic yes. development tools are yours. The appointment tools are yours, many of which don't require advice and consent. Such as judges. Yeah, yeah all uh, judges. It, it's, it's a... It's it's, it's kind of like when you when you study civics and you see some of these have strong mayor systems and others. Which right. Are, and especially on the fiscal end, um, the Constitution properly... Uh, gives the governor a significant role there. So the bottom line is I think that there's an overestimation in the public's eyes about the legislature. And it's a significant portion. I work with them, and we've gotten a lot done, and I'll go through some of the highlights or, or lowlights or whatever. But <laughs> the bottom line is that, that that is a relatively small amount of what you do as governor. Yeah. Right. Uh, it really is. And I don't mean to say that to minimize their, I was serving the legislature. I respect them. I, I work with them. But I do think that if that's, if you're looking at a grade card, mm -hmm. uh, or if you're looking at a, a way to, to have history look at you, uh, the vast majority of things that I've, that I've been involved in um, had sometimes you need legislative help, but oftentimes after. And you and you can delve into that too, not just no, not just legislative. But I think that's an important thing to know yeah, because, because I think ordinary people may not know that. Right. I mean, yeah, because the governor can just unilaterally cut out spending right. if it's needed well, you, to balance you, the budget. Yeah, you have to. I mean, we we don't print money in the state, so you have to have somebody at the end of the line. And it's, that was especially important in 2009, 2010. Yes. Uh, and so when you come in, I mean, I, I had to restrict budget seven times during the first year. Okay, so all the legislature does is provide appropriation authority, and the money is actually spent through the executive branch. Right, um, and that that you know that that difference is important, especially on the down end, and that's one of the things I'm most proud of, uh, Jason and Joe, is that that we were able to weather the largest recession since the Great Depression, and I was able to downsize government by by over 5,100 folks take $1.5 billion out of the base budgets of our, our state and do that in a way that protected our values and protected our institutions and kept us moving forward in a, in a positive progression that has led us to be where we are today, which is much better off on a whole lot of things. So I spent, the bottom line is, to, to answer your question to start out, sure. um, the first 18 months, uh, I spent an incredible amount of time, energy, and effort balancing the budget. And, and actually balancing it, not passing a bill to balance it, but actually balancing Because if you recall, when the stimulus was passed, the, one of the houses just said, we'll put all the money in, even though it's a two-year payment. So right. you, you had to make a lot of decisions. And I'm very, very proud that we were able to prioritize. And was it easier to balance the budget in Missouri where you have the Hancock Amendment and the legislature can't just raise taxes without a public vote? Or I know it was challenging because you had to make yeah, cuts, but, I, but did that make it a little bit easier of a choice that you either have to make cuts or nothing. Well, when I like. said, when I ran for office, I said I was going to hold the line on taxes. So ta raising taxes has never right. been on my list of things to do. Mm -hmm. It's not, the Hancock Amendment is just, it's out there, um, you know, and whatnot. It, it's, it's a law. I don't mean to say it's not there. But when I ran, I told the public in the state of Missouri that, that 
you you pay and I will I've cut taxes a couple of times which I thought was could add jobs and they have quite frankly getting rid of the franchise tax getting rid of the tax on on uh, veterans pensions so we can attract more veterans we've now hired almost 8500 veterans on our show me heroes program in Missouri that would that are here because of that the bottom line that and a few other things the bottom line is that I didn't really the tax the Hancock amendment didn't really have that much okay. to do with it because I did when I ran I said I'm going to hold the line on taxes so I didn't come to the table saying how can I get more revenue but when you ran, there was a number of things that you were hoping to do. Uh, you you had talked about restoring the Medicaid cuts from that were made in 2005, which you had said for years. We have added 100,000 kids to, to Medicaid in, right. since I've been governor yeah. by, through the executive branch. That's uh, once again, that's something that a lot of folks missed. You can run things and go and 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 run things better. And because of that, today, 100,000 kids have health care. That, that, that wouldn't have had and, it and, before. And the asset limit went up. That bill that you signed earlier this year was uh, was something that I think the legislature had been haggling over for years, which they finally got done, which I think is going to make a difference in yeah, everyday lives. It would lives. make it be a lot cheaper if we passed full Medicaid expansion. So instead of paying 60-40 money on it, we had 90-10 or 95-10 right. on the match. I sound like an accountant in chief here. But the bottom line is that we need, if we would have passed Medicaid expansion, we would have we would have blown over that asset limit a long time ago. Right. And we would have been in a situation to provide both, uh, begin the process of, of the transformation of, of uh, better health care. So, I mean, well, keeping in line with that, then, because the General Assembly refused to do any sort of Medicaid expansion and was even trying to, you know, try block the state running its own exchange and some other things, um, how big of a loss do you think that was economically to the state? And do you think, I mean, even if somehow a Missouri program is created under whoever's the next governor, they're still not going to get those three years of free money back. I mean, that's gone. Uh, I'm just interested. Well, 90 in, 10 is a pretty good match. So, I mean, we, we, right, we, we right, highways are 75-25. I mean, I, this, the fact that the, this, this legislature has decided that Missourians should pay taxes, we should send them to Washington, D.C., and then we should let Washington, D.C. spend those money for health care in other states, I think is bad policy. And I think the politics got in the way. Nobody would have really a significant substantive discussion with us about the underlying fiscal or health care issues. I think that drawing that money back, not having Missouri be a donor state in billions of dollars a year to other states, is going to help both our economy as well as the health care of our state when it ultimately passes. Well, I, mean, I recall in 2009 when you put forward a proposal that would have the hospitals pay for a fairly modest Medicaid expansion. It was 35000 added. And I don't even think there was any state money that went into there, yet no. the legislature no. still rejected it because it was, I mean, there was, there was environmental things like the ACA was being debated then and maybe there was a political overtone. But the fact that they didn't even do that, wasn't that a pretty bad sign when you eventually proposed, you know, Medicaid expansion under the ACA that it just wasn't going to happen? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously, if 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 folks don't want to take money that doesn't come out of general revenue and spend it for, for health care, that's not a good sign as to whether if that becomes more money, it's going to happen. Uh, but once again, I think this whole thing is the the problems here have been political, not right. not substantive, not not like health care substantive. Did that surprise you? Because I remember, you know, covering you when you first ran in 2008 and you had plans just like Obama had plans. And of course, when you took office, all of a sudden there was all this economic issues. And instead, you had to spend at least a year and a half dealing with what to cut instead of adding anything that you had hoped to add. So did. Did that kind of change your whole outlook? I will say as we got into the second year, though, we, we did some really good stuff. That's the year we passed the, the manufacturing okay. bill that allowed us to get okay. the autos. We, we did, and we got the pension things fixed during that time frame, too. But, but I mean, did it did change your mindset over 
how you were going to have to approach things because yeah, I mean, of the economic you, downturn and Absolutely. Everything. I mean, because we focused on, on getting people back to work, getting training. And at the same time, I took $1.5 billion out and down 5,100 employees. We put 52% more in for worker training. And we, we did a lot for community colleges. We had Mo Health wins and Mo Manufacturing wins. We needed to get people. People weren't working. We needed to get them trained. Uh, and so we did some really dramatic stuff to get people in community colleges and colleges at that time and worker training uh, to make sure that when folks were, had their downtime, that, that when they came back to the workforce, they were going to be stronger. So we were we were focused on all that. But but when you don't have money in a state that doesn't print money, um, it limits some of the decisions you're going to be able to make. And this is an observation that I made. I think in the, your first two years, you had two leaders of the legislature, Ron Richard and Charlie Shields, who I think you forged pretty good relationships with both. And I think that allowed you to get a lot of things done, not only the budgetary things, but the pension and manufacturing. Well, thing. they were participants. Yeah. You know, they were not commentators. And that was what I was they were saying. not. I mean, they, they're politicians, but but they enjoyed the craft of legislating, and they they kind of enjoyed the. Well, perhaps one of them more as an expert on policy than the other. Certain areas of policy, probably Shields now. For example, I appointed him. He's chairman of the state uh, board, of board of education. Right. Um, but but it it uh, you know they like to. Uh, we then went through a phase where you got, I mean, the Senate had its meltdown. They could have flip a coin to see who was going to be the pro tem. You get a different <laughs> speaker that, that kind of was uh, more of a commentator, very political, kind of outside which, in. Which one? Jones. Yeah. Um, I thought you were talking about Tilly for a second. Uh, no, Tilly liked to do deals. Yeah, we got, got yeah, a lot done with Tilly. Tilly. I, I, mean, I kind of got the sense yeah. that he was also serious about. He was very political in some sense, but I also thought he also was very policy oriented. Uh, Tilly and I got along really, really well. I mean, it, it uh, didn't always agree, but we got along well. And uh, you know, a little bit of a poker player with you sometimes. You know, <laughs> in, in the sense of how how you work with right. things, but that's okay. I mean, I got a pretty tall stack on my side yeah. of the table. So, but you're right. That's, uh, during that time, the Senate was just in the throes of of kind of leadership. Crisis, yeah, I mean, when so. you flip a coin to decide who's going to be the pro tem, and then the other side is constantly still fighting them on the, right. on the on the Republican side, they were having a hard time. I will say here on this program that that, and I, I saw him down in the boot hill this last weekend when Rob Mayer was chairman of appropriations, mm-hmm. the first year. You look at the budget passed by the House, way too much. Didn't even try to right, really cut right, anything. Right. Rob Mayer got serious and was very helpful uh, and, I, and did some, some really good public policy work. He actually stepped up. Remember Charlie took – they took set the Senate down for a couple of days, yes. that rebooting government stuff. Those guys took seriously the responsibility to try to work together. Yeah. Now, I had to do more than they did, uh, but the attitude over there was helpful. Um, so, yeah, Ron and, and Charlie were uh, um, um, people that I work with and continue to, well, to the, get along The with. reason I mentioned that is because after the 2010 election cycle, it seemed like the legislature became much more adversarial with you. And oftentimes you had to play a lot more defense. Not always. I know you passed a lot of major bills, second injury fund changes and whatnot. But it, it did seem well, like 283 it was times my veto has yeah. been sustained. Yeah. 283 times. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've won. And I've had to fight on some big ones. Yeah. Some really big ones. That, and I just spent an entire summer on 253, the yes. Kansas tax cuts. We would not yes. be where that's it. And then the next summer, I had to spend a uh, summer on Friday favors. So there was $2 billion and basically. Right to work. And right to work. $2 billion worth of tax cuts with not a single job created, just an experiment. And it's not working out that well in Kansas that I had to turn votes on. And I was successful in both of them. Uh, I mean, when you people say that's impossible to do to get to get the other party to switch on a on a, a tax cut bill to take the summer and do that. So I had right. two summers doing that two in a row that were both successful. And, and that's two billion dollars 
and we're a low tax state already. Um, now they passed 509, which I think is a mistake, but that's neither here nor there. The bottom line is that that whether that was controversial, uh, confrontational or not, that had, didn't have anything really for me to do whether somebody was a Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. That's just the I thought it was the wrong policy for the yeah, state, that, and I put a lot of energy now, on it. Now, look, yeah. looking at Brownback, Successfully I mean, too. The, your counterpart in Kansas, and, and all those tech, tax cuts that they did and the economic problems and budget problems they've had, um, I know nobody wants to uh, feel happy about somebody else's, uh, but but it, but is that in some ways um, back up your point from the when you were arguing against some of those massive cuts um, early on when Brown someone has had this- the largest tax cut in Kansas history and the largest tax increase to try to make up for. Now, they don't talk about the tax increase they had to do later that didn't get it all done either. Uh, so that sort of unpredictable environment um, and not funding of colleges, not funding of schools, they had right. an $800 million interest-only loan that they took out as a government, mm-hmm. an interest-only loan. I mean, $800 million, and it didn't come public until like a year later. Uh, the bottom line is that's why they've been downgraded, why we remain uh, the highest-rated state as far as credit rating. Uh, we spend a lot of time doing that. I spend a fair amount of my time having to sit in New York and get cross-examined by um, young guys with uh, uh, suspenders on to why? graduate from Wharton. You know, all the all the rating agencies. You spend yeah. your time getting <laughs> as you do know, all these bond issues and whatnot. Uh, yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it uh, yeah, I think that uh, the the uh, the mistakes they've made in Kansas are pretty clear. So I want to transition into kind of leadership through crisis. And I want to ask about something that this came to mind. You were governor when a statewide official died and you had to appoint a a new state auditor. I'd like to get your sense of how you dealt with that situation and what your reaction was, because we don't really talk about the death of Tom Schwake that often, but it's a, I mean, I'm going to be honest here. It's personally affected me because the, the manner of his death, the fact that he committed suicide was deeply troubling to me. And I really liked him as a person, and I'm sad almost every day the fact that he's gone. I would like to hear your insight into your perspective on it, because not only was it emotionally wrenching, you had to actually make a decision who the next state auditor was. Right. It was was a personal tragedy for all of us in this this difficult avocation we've chosen, where there is a lot of give and take, and, and your life is out there in public. Um, so, and I had just seen him a couple of days before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's it remains uh, one of those. I, I, quite frankly, I thought um, when I, when you first opened it up, the other time that that, that happened was with, when uh, we lost Governor Carnahan, yeah. right. Attorney General at the time. That was one of the, the very difficult time. Both of those were were difficult, different situations. Yes. But um, so so my mentality was to try to stabilize the office, try to give confidence in the office real quickly. So I appointed a temporary auditor. Uh, I think when I appointed John Watson, my chief of staff, I think everybody understood John's one of these folks that is a good, honest broker and is going right. to handle the office well right, and do right, it well. Because right, right. I wanted to have a I, I wanted to have enough time to make what I thought was a good long term decision for the state. And I think at that point, all of us were were emotionally reacting as opposed to structurally reacting. You on the press, me on, on my end. So the the first thing I did was appoint uh, an acting auditor, so that then I could have a process to look at a number of candidates uh, and and see what I thought the best uh, step forward was for the state. So I like everybody else took a little bit of a of a just like a jump stop uh, for six or seven weeks to to then get a process in place to make a, a significant appointment for a constitutional office. And you you ended up choosing Nicole. Galloway. And there was some pressure on you to appoint an African-American, I'm sure that you knew. 
But I know that there's a lot of people who think you made an excellent choice with, with Nicole Galloway. But why did you decide to choose her? Well, um, there was a pl- pressure from a lot of folks to appoint a lot of people. Um, you get a free statewide office without the necessity of an election. There's, that's a... Uh, that's a rare plum uh, for, uh, for for folks, especially one of the, of the offices where you clearly have an opportunity later on to, to move up. Um, so um, I, I, I know I'd appointed her to two other positions. Um, I had appointed her uh, to the Missouri Technology Corporation, but before that I had appointed her uh, county treasurer in Boone County after you had the death of a, of a treasurer there. So she had been through that. Uh, she's really, really smart. Um, and um, just honest as the day is long, and she was on my list really early on because I, I was I was kind of committed to trying to bring in the the next generation. Mm. Well, you in know, fact, that, that, in I, fact I, that's I felt what I was going to ask. Want, yeah, I, if you intentionally had been looking for somebody, yeah, younger. I really was. I mean, I, I thought that the, that this is somebody who I wanted to get a commitment that they would run for reelection for that office. I didn't want them to j- jump too soon, but um, I wanted to choose somebody that I thought could be a a, a great leader for a long time, and that the other thing it brought good core competency to that that position, and I think uh, that that she does. So as we went through the various interviews and and whatnot, it whittled down. Uh, she continued to rise up and and, and score the best, and uh, very proud of that appointment. I think she'll do a great job, um, and uh, we'll see if she gets reelected. Now, you know, now she'll, she'll have another kid. Yeah. Now, one of the other crises, I think, you know, is obviously Joplin, and. Um, I mean, I remember being with you at the airport after Lambert got hit with all the tornadoes and stuff. I mean, these, these natural disasters, there are no plans for. I mean, these can happen. I was interested, I mean, now that you're looking back uh, as far as the the whole Joplin, um, that awful tragedy, just kind of what was going through your mind during all this? How did you hear about it? And then, of course, you were down there, and you got actually pretty decent marks for your handling of that. Um, any thoughts? I mean, as you look back on that, um, how I heard about it was was interesting. I mean, I was I used to I usually go down and try to on Sunday evenings. Uh, I've got an elliptical downstairs with a TV in the in the mansion, and I try to work out around five fifteen so I can see the end of the NFL games and see the see the like kind of the end of the game show. <laughs> so no know. podcast. It's kind of the spot. Well, I mean, it, I was know. playing poker yeah. when that happened. Well, but, but you get to see. At the end of Sunday, they show you a little bit from all the games, yeah, and yeah. rather than sitting there watching the games all the time, you get to see the whole thing. And then Sunday nights is a night as a work night for me as you prepare for the next week. Right. Um, so um, I got on the uh, down there a little early that night, um, and Ted Ardini called. The council called at about five till five. That, that tornado hit at five twenty-one. So called before the tornado and said, "There's a weather pattern coming at Joplin that's really dangerous. You might want to flip to the Weather Channel. Something might happen." So we were we're watching. I mean, we watch this stuff. I mean, there's part of me that wow. feels like you're the state weatherman. Um, so so I was extremely aware and saw that. You know, watched that. We were then pretty much. I didn't leave that office. It's an office down in the basement. Didn't leave that office till twelve or one o'clock that night. Just working right there uh, on a number of things. Uh, we had we had to get communications down there. We had to get uh, a bunch of things done, and I couldn't get down there that night. The weather was too bad. I was down there obviously the next day. I was down there um, uh, ten of the first eleven days. I was there seventy five of the first ninety days. I was in Joplin. Um, so um, Joplin kind of stands as a, a large one, but I think it's important to put Joplin in context for just one second. That's why it's great to have a little more time here. Okay. Uh, Two thousand eleven, our state emergency management was up two hundred forty five days. The tornado you mentioned was New Year's. We also that year 
had to close I-70, first and only time that's ever happened because mm-hmm. of snow. Yeah, and I, I want to tell, that. I want to thank the Missourians that helped us. I mean, look what happened in Atlanta when they had to close uh, close the road a little bit. Kids were having to sleep in buses. We had everybody between basically west of St. Louis to Independence. They were all housed that night safely uh, and taken care of. We also had the tornado in, in Sedalia. Bird's Point was blown up down yeah. the boot heel in April uh, where the Corps of Engineers blew up and flooded half a county. We had 68 levees we lost in northwest Missouri. That's why I was up there yesterday going through that. And then you had the Joplin tornado. So we were fully operational the entire year on significant emergency management. Um, and, and I think uh, got, you can say got high marks. Or the bottom line with Joplin was bigger than the rest of them. And for those that don't kind of recall the numbers, just real quick, a rundown of those numbers, 161 killed, 1,100 hospitalized, uh, 11,000 cars uh, wiped out, 7,550 houses, nine schools, 765 businesses uh, damaged significantly, uh, about 650 of those completely destroyed. Uh, what we were concerned about uh, from day one uh, was that we'd lose a town. Hospital hit, wiped out, obviously, 2,200 jobs right there. Uh, so from day one, we were trying to uh, give people down there the strength to rebuild and to put the organization around it. At one point, we had 405 law enforcement agencies down there. Remember Tim Fish, the former chief yes. here, was was directing traffic. Yeah. One day I passed Tim down there because he's I'm, I'm down here taking orders. Let's go. It, it's just <laughs> unimaginable. And I'd been to Joplin a couple of times when I was in college. It's a wonderful place. It's very prosperous. It's close to the Arkansas border. So I think economically it's been doing had been doing really well. I still think it is. But that it must be an enormous challenge after a weather pattern of that magnitude causes that much damage to such a big town. Basically. Yeah, I mean, Tuesday morning, Lane and Roberts and I, who's now DPS director, we walked the, the tornado route this week. Uh, we started out before dawn up at the, the park that's now not Cunningham Park, but the other side right. uh, where the hospital was. And we walked um, the route of that tornado um, started before dawn, uh, as, and then we went down to Carthage. We were doing a safe room announcement uh, down there. Uh, it was really moving emotionally in a lot of ways. Um, the unemployment rate there is lower than it was um, at the time. That the population is the highest it's ever been. When school started August uh, 17th of that year, 98.4 percent of the kids were back in school. We did a whole. We rebuilt us. We built a school in 56 days in a mall, the high school. Uh, we yeah. built a middle school at a factory. Um, we, we did, we just pulled out every stop you can pull out and, 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 uh, really proud of the effort there. Are there any lessons that you took away from that, that either maybe things that didn't go smoothly that you would do next time or just things that worked out well that you think, well, we need to remember how we did this. So if something like this happens again, we can duplicate that. Well, we took over the death notification side of that. And, you know, after a while, there was misinformed numbers about how many people were missing. They said 1,500 people, and we knew it wasn't that number. We had to take that over. Um, so I, I just think that in a, in a mass casualty situation like that, where there's where the bodies are, are really damaged too, it's really hard to identify um, folks. Um, the bottom line is we, we probably. Uh, um, that part of it, I think, would, would be part of what we do now. And that's why we've now got assets uh, for what we call our DMORT to, to deal with issues like that. So that's one. I got, uh, there's a hundred things I can say, but that's one of them. Um, also, the management of, of nonprofit resource. Really important. We had 180,000 volunteers from all 50 states work mm-hmm. down there over the next uh, 12 months. That's a pretty amazing thing yeah, to do yeah. that safely and organize it uh, was something that I think the nation is watching and is continuing to watch uh, how we did that. And we're getting continue to get a lot of calls on how to, how to organize mass volunteers. Really? So I want to ask, where were you when you found out Michael Brown was shot and killed? 
um, I was uh, in the mansion and picked up the Sunday Post-Dispatch and saw the picture on the front page. So it was Sunday. So what was your reaction when you saw that? Um, first of all, unfortunately, from a lot of different sources, sure, um, murders happen in a state. Yeah. And generally, the chief executive is not in a command control issue about investigations or, or, or whatever. That one had a different feel to it. Uh, because um, the the fact there that 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 drew my attention not just the the uh, cop and 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 a young man that's obviously the uh, a challenge um, but the fact that um, the body lay there for four and a half hours I mean and the mother was in essence prevented from the opportunity I mean you can only imagine as a parent if if regardless of what the fact pattern is I mean if you can literally see your 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 son or daughter uh laying in the street and you're you're unable to interact that that just it, yeah. it seemed to me like things were supposed to, so at about nine twenty on monday morning uh i picked up the phone and and talked with uh, uh county executive dooley and his senior team uh and indicated that at that point i was going to reach out to the department of justice and ask for a for a dual investigation at the same time now by that time the the protests were pretty there had well been there, not only protests there had been riots and the quick trip was burned down and many businesses were, were vandalized but continue yeah on sunday evening on sunday right evening. right right so yes when the first time i saw um, the bottom line is i saw it that sunday <laughs> we saw what happened sunday night and monday morning first thing 9 a.m i'm on the phones and then on the phone to the justice department saying let's do dual investigations so we have uh, uh independent at done at the same time so you've been asked about ferguson a lot I mean, it's going to be part of your legacy, good or bad. And we've asked you specific questions about why you did this decision or X decision. I'm more interested in how difficult it was to be the governor during this crisis, because you obviously got a lot of criticism, rightly or wrongly. But it also just seemed like, from my perspective, and this is why I asked you right before the grand jury decision, what do you say to the people who say that government has failed? And, and how courts have failed. It just seemed like the governmental reaction across the board was disorganized and just wasn't good. I want you to kind of explain what your perspective was. Well, I mean, there was a lot of local government involvement there. This, the state was, was, was not in command and control on either one of the investigations. Right. Um, and at various times, obviously, had to, to bring in uh, additional coordination resources on the, on the public safety side, which, which, which we did. Um, so look back. I mean, uh, what we were doing was, first of all, trying to make sure that, that that didn't happen again. And the fact that throughout all of that, with all the intensity, you didn't have another another shooting on either side. Uh, a cop wasn't shot by by somebody, and, and the cop didn't shoot anybody else. Uh, with all that intensity, uh, shows a lot I of think discipline. That there were some police officers that were shot from August 9th to November 24th. Right, but not as part of the protests. There was yeah. one running in the back of a room, back behind a building, trying to chase yeah. a, a, yes. a fugitive. That's what in, I'm in that to. area. But it, but as far as as far as the protests, yes, um, that, that, that was not. That was what the, I was referring yeah, to. that, that was. Uh, and I, like I say, there were other, and you had the the other shooting down. I mean, the down the city, the, yes. the fellow with the knife and that sort of stuff. But inside that zone, um, there there was there was there was that. So yeah, I, I think that. Um, it showed some gaps at the, at, at the, at the local side. But it, when I talk about Ferguson now, I, I, I say three things. We've listened, we've learned, and things are getting better. And I think that unlike a lot of other areas, 
the simplest thing would have been to to be done with this, back away from it, and say we don't have a responsibility both to the region and the country to try to find some long-term solutions. And instead, I chose to take the more difficult path. That difficult path is not only to be involved personally, but to appoint a commission and then make substantive changes, okay, whether it's the, um, you know, Band of Ox or the municipal court reform or the summer jobs league are are all of the things that that we have done recruiting businesses to 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 invest there all it would have been a lot easier for a lot of folks to back off and I'm really proud uh, of of that the the region has said we're going to try to be an example for this understanding it's a long hard fight uh long hard trail to to get down to make real well, progress that was going to be my next question and this is something I've focused on a lot Although municipal, I'm not saying that the municipal court overhaul was by any means insignificant. It's very significant. If you look at other states, when you talk about changes to law enforcement, even red states like Texas, they have gotten a lot farther on changing law enforcement policy than Missouri has, despite the fact that Missouri went through this incredibly well, I would also, crisis. But I, I, want to I don't, want, I don't want to be critical of the press, especially yeah, when you got sure. the microphone and I got this. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. But of the least covered things that we've done, mm-hmm. the changes we've done in police officer standard training. Okay, you want to talk about I mean, that? I mean, we, we now are requiring anti-bias training. We're requiring uh, de-escalation training. Yes. We give uh, mental health treatment for cops. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we I appointed a, a whole lot of good people on the Post Commission that went around the state and had hearings. Uh, Manuel Cleaver III, Lane Roberts now. Uh, right. was working on. Some of those things are going to, and then mental health training on all sides uh, of that and, and upping the amount of training that's required. Uh, that sort of stuff is long-term substantial. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what other states have done on the requiring of training, but that's a pretty significant step forward. And, and you know, that that is something that it's, it's you know, that's necessary so that you get best practices, best training and and uh, not unimportant. Do you think your administration has not gotten some of the credit it deserves for at least some of this I mean there's no stuff that, or is there when st- you have issues involve uh you know race and violence and 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 you know uh, riots and whatnot that that it, there's really hard to jam that into a uh you know a, a good positive moment. You know I mean it, it's, right. it's, it's 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 a raw moment. It, it's a, it's a, it's a it's an expression of of deep-seated challenges on, on a lot of folks' side. What I've been frustrated by is that as if different things have happened across the country, um, it seems people gravitate towards just the facts of what happened in that case, whether it's in Minnesota or New York or, or Charlotte or whatever, as opposed to the larger, broader, deeper issues that are really what we got to get at. Were you disappointed that neither the president nor Hillary Clinton has actually visited Ferguson? I, I, the campaigns are busy. I'm not going to be critical of where they spend their time. They need to win, and, and uh, uh, where the swing voters are is where both candidates— But this is the reason I asked that question. I mean, the, the federal government has Ferguson a consent decree, and I think as the leader of the federal government, I think whoever is the next president should go to Ferguson and talk with the people about how that's, do, how that's going and how they're changing their city. Do you think that's a reasonable expectation? Sure, that's that's one one place that uh, a president might go. But uh, I think it would have been if you're going to ask when it's there. I mean, common people down on the front end to get to a more rational thought earlier would have yeah. been also a role that 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 could have been. But it was it was a hot place, and 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 like I say, not a lot of folks want to be around it. Now, d- did it? Were you caught off guard when what happened in November when uh, McCullough, you know, announced the? Grand jury decision, you know, not to indict, and then things got really crazy, you know, and there was a lot of, you know, arson and a lot of stuff that went on that 
that night. And I know you've come under fire for whether or not the um, National Guard was where they should have been or whatever. Looking back, I mean, is there anything you want to say about that? I mean, this is the November. So here it is, like, what, three months later. And Well, I mean, uh, the timing of the of that on at the time at night like that obviously was not good. I didn't have control over that. Right. That's, not, that's not when you want to do that. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and take a whole bunch of time replaying history on that. But mm. it doesn't take a uh, – doesn't take a, a – any sort of deep analysis to say you shouldn't do it at night and you shouldn't do it in, in a, on a weekend like that um, as far as public safety. Um, but once again, I wasn't in the room making a decision right. when and, and, and who knows. Yeah, but uh, you had to deal with the fallout. Yeah, you bet I had to. Um, but as far as the reaction after that, um, it certainly didn't help us that some of the some of the family members said some pretty outrageous stuff that night that uh, let's burn the thing down was not what the PSAs that had been prepared. Uh, well, that wasn't the same verbiage. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and that, that was, and, and, but secondarily, we also thought there might be more action in Clayton. Yes. I mean, we, we, that we were concerned um, that, that you're going to see, cause that's where the decision was made. Right. And so we, but, but we had enough resources out there. The bottom line is there was going to be some action at night and, and, and nobody was significantly hurt. There certainly were some businesses that were, that were down. But once, once people started shooting guns off, you can't have, you can't send firefighters into gunfire guys. And, and you I just wanna, cannot. I want to make this point. I'm going to And I, and, yeah. and, and I, 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 I was alive when, when we had the problems at Kent state yeah. uh-huh. and, okay. and if a Excuse national guardsman, had lowered an M1 rifle and shot an unarmed African-American in the streets of his own hometown in there to think he was going to stop somebody from breaking a window. That's not a trade you want to make. I want to make right. this. That's just not a trade you want right. to make. Right. So, and, and, I, and, I, and I dealt Sorry. directly with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I talked again to, to General Grass just the other day. I mean, everyone was deeply concerned about, about that risk. We would be in a much worse place if, uh, uh, you know, Kent State's a long time ago, and we all remember it. Ferguson would be in a much different place yeah. if, if when somebody said they were going to run out and break a window, that the order was there that American soldiers on American soil should shoot American yeah. citizens. I was not prepared and what would not, not – I was prepared. I would not give that order, and that was the right decision. So, so does that surprise you then that during the re- Republican uh, primary for governor – all four candidates, you know, made a big deal about saying, you know, there there hadn't been enough law and order in Ferguson and they wouldn't allow this or that. I mean, did, as you're watching this, I mean, because they basically were advocating what you just said would have been uh, a, a tragedy. Did that I mean, did 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 that surprise you? We had a powder keg there in a lot of ways, and we were trying to, uh, you know, stay calm and not show as much strength. What you want to do is you don't want to have an army overtake things. So the bottom line is I, none of those folks had the information I had. They didn't have the intelligence that I had. They weren't where we were, um, and they're they're entitled in a campaign to to uh, to to say whatever they want. I disagree with a lot of what was said by them because they were uninformed, and and plus they had a political bent to what they were talking about. And I had, what I was doing had nothing to do with politics; it was public safety, and it was making sure we got through that. And sure, we lost a few buildings, and that's that's yeah. bad, but we didn't lose people, and that's good. And, and this is what I was trying to say, and I apologize for interrupting during your answer, but I think what you just said is eminently reasonable. Buildings can be rebuilt if someone shoots and kills somebody. Not only is there more of a legacy, I mean, somebody's dead. I mean, that's unimaginable. My question to you is, you called a state of emergency about a week ahead of time. I, I don't have the text in front of you, but I'm just wondering if by calling a state of emergency that early, did it give the impression that you were also going to protect property as well? Uh, perhaps, but, you, but, but you're, uh, you know, and we did protect a lot of property. Right. Yes. I mean, 
I mean, th- that's one thing. I'm not going to go through the full operational plan, but exactly. but when the when Halloween when the when the power went out in in Ferguson, that was because somebody attacked a tower and knocked down the power. Mm-hmm. So we were guarding every bit of the electric grid in this area. Yes. We had folks guarding every fire station in case they had folks had to be out. We had medevacs there in case there was there were situations where people had had problems. So you bet we were guarding a lot of property. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and the essential assets of the community stayed intact. Mm-hmm. Were not dealt with and lost. Um, yeah, we lost an auto zone, and I don't mean to minimize that uh, in any way, shape, or form. But when you look at the context of the size of the scope of what, where this could be, the city and the county, and the breadth of where things were going on, um, you know, uh, it, it, folks running around that are that upset are going to find something to hit. Yeah. Okay. And that's why that's why I wanted to be very careful with my preface because, as I said before, lives cannot be replaced. I've noticed a lot of businesses have reopened. Now, here it is two years later, and we're still Plus, talking we're about it. up the time on all my great yeah. legacy stuff. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but, but two I years later, we're fine. talking about it. But as you say, many times when you start stepping back uh, without judging who was right or who was wrong, the fact that there was no loss of life during all that, I mean, I think, I mean, so do, you mentioned that you've had some talks lately. I mean, in Washington and other places, is there sort of a, revised judgment of how you and others performed in the wake of the fact no, no, I think the movie, that, uh, that nobody was killed? I think the movie's made, and I think the national press decided that, that they wanted to, to to cover it in a certain way. I mean, I, the frustrating part to me is that, that you had certain people saying I wasn't around when 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 and, and hadn't been there, and that's just not true. I mean, it's not even close to true, and quite frankly, the people who were saying that. Um, they weren't know, around. Well, Some I mean, there, well, I mean, uh, a state senator was around, but 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 uh, to say that I wasn't there when when I'm on the, on the horn on Monday morning with them in the Justice Department, uh, when I'm at a, a community meeting uh, Tuesday night, and Tracy when you're Blackman's, being yelled at at yeah, a press conference, yeah, community exactly. meeting in Tracy Blackman's church on Tuesday, when I've yeah. been by the place where where Michael Brown uh, laid and had a picture of that on my Twitter account during that that the first few days and all that sort of stuff. For people to say I wasn't there um, is uh, is just and and to repeat that. Um, um, we were, and we were, we, you know, so that, that part of it's a challenge. So we, we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to touch upon your political legacy because one of the things that I've noticed in the, the description of this U.S. Senate race is they're painting Missouri as like this impenetrable red fortress that's too Republican to elect a statewide Democrat. Now, here, here we have as our guest somebody who's been elected to statewide office and six by times. huge majorities. six times. You were elected governor, I think, double digits both times against two credible opponents. Kenny Holsoff, credible opponent, was seen as a very promising political figure. You beat him by, what, 19 points, 20 points? Dave Spence was a self-funding candidate who spent a lot of money, a very impressive business background. I think you you beat him by less, but you still beat him by a lot. So regardless of what people think about your decisions, it's obviously you were very successful from that end. I I, I guess this is your chance to In the Missouri... Voters, obviously. So I guess this is your chance saw. to spike the football and explain why. <laughs> but, I mean, that is part of your political legacy yeah, that you're why do you personally think very you successful. Were, you, you, you have had huge majorities in most of your statewide elections from 92 on. Um, any thoughts? Well, 92 was close, but from 96 on. Um, so, I mean, thoughts about why? why? I mean, obviously a lot, of, a lot of the voters liked you and they liked what you did. 
What do you think? I mean, when you look at that and what lessons does that provide for other Democrats? Well, I would indicate that uh, my, my thought is that they still show a lot of respect for us. And I appreciate, uh, as you see, kind of on the the, the numbers, they, they continue to rise. I mean, uh, as far as like but I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at that sort of stuff and not doing a lot of polling. I, I think there's there's three basic reasons. Um, First of all, I committed to to campaign and to govern in all ports of our state. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't try to approach this as I'm going to go to just the Democrat areas, the Republican areas. Um, so in in campaigns and in service, um, I go I go everywhere. I mean, I, I I don't try to stay in the office and make people come to me. I think that's really important because people tell tell you stuff when you're out in their community that they'll never tell you. So taking a position in which you're gonna, which I'm gonna spend time in in rural areas. I'm gonna spend time in Republican areas. I'm gonna spend time in Democrat in all sorts of communities. First of all, that number two, I work really hard, guys. I I mean, we're in a world in which if it uh, hard work pays off, and, and I get up early and I stay late. And I think people know that. I think they appreciate that. And number three, I, I just don't approach things in an overly political way. I, I, that's not interesting to me. When people come at you and they say, I'm a Democrat, so, or I'm a Republican, so, what they're getting ready to do is say they can't prove it, so they, they're, they, the reason they hold this position is because what party they are. I, I, that's just not interesting to me, and I've always been somebody who approached it. Plus, I think when I was attorney general and state senator and as governor, average working people out there know that I understand their challenges and that I've been consistent and I've taken the high road. The other thing is I've taken the high road. I have not been a guy. What, what's the old line? Uh, you take the high road, there's less traffic up there. <laughs> I, 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 people come after me all the time. People say all sorts of stuff. I mean, I'm sure yes. these candidates say stuff. Uh, you ask me what some of these guys in the Republican primary said about this or that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say I don't care, but I, it doesn't. it's not what I, I don't really care. You know, I, I mean, my job is to serve 6.2 million Missourians, uh, not to not to be. I remember right after I got elected. I mean, the people would say stuff and they'd come in and say, "Oh, this is a good quip to come back at him." I've I've just been disappointing to you all the entire time as governor. You, you've as had far some good somebody kind of you've had some good quips, but at the same time, while you've been personally successful, the legislature has become extremely Republican. Some rural parts of the state, like Northeast Missouri, Central Missouri, and Southeast Missouri, which are historically Democratic, have gone deep red. And that has to be part of your political legacy, even if it's part of a right. national trend. Why yeah. do you think that happened? Because the fact that Northeast Missouri has nobody in the legislature anymore is shocking to me. Oh, we're seeing that's why Trump's here now. I mean, they've been pretty effective at the use of wedge issues. Okay. Dividing people dividing people is a very good political uh, political strategy. And, and that's what they've done. And it's played out. And they've part with no limits. They've parla- parliamentarized elections, too, so that uh, you're uh, in those areas. But I, I I'm, you know, that's uh, th- those are counties that I've won. So when you look back over everything, what are the things that you want people to remember you for? I mean, you know, uh, aside F- from, F- the, fiscal, from the fiscal, political. we've been incredibly fiscally disciplined and the education front. Our schools are much more well funded. The bottom line is we're up 36% in college graduates from four-year. We're up 44% in two-year graduates. In the mental health system, we've completely we've made some incredible investments with the autism mandate, with the new mental hospital, with our partnership for hope, with our mental health liaisons. We've made huge. And then on the advanced manufacturing sector, we've added 26,000 advanced manufacturing sector jobs since 2010. We now have these two huge auto plants that I personally negotiated those deals, called the legislature in for a special session to get. And we've done all that while maintaining our fiscal discipline. Well, Governor, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming to do our show and talking for an hour about your legacy. Um, Even though I'm sure that Joe and I have had back and forth with you overall. I immensely respect 
the office of the governorship, just as I respect Matt Blunt and Bob Holden and yourself. And I just want to let you know that. And thank you for being here today. Thank you. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... at Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. You can follow the governor on Gov Jay Nixon. Do you actually look at your Twitter account? Are you Absolutely. Actually, I prove every one. Oh, my gosh. Every single one. There's nothing out there that... Uh, yeah, everyone. Oh, and and we, we always have closeout music. So we were going to ask you, what's your favorite song? So we can stick that here at the end. Yeah, it's... Uh, It'd be good to finish with the boss. Well, born to run wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and he has to run so long.